If it's your first Sunday, I hope that you feel like, like maybe we were expecting you. Uh, you know, everything that we do, listen to me, if it's, if it's your first week with us, everything that we do here is for you. We, we exist for four reasons, and we, we want people to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. And we believe that creating an environment that feels like home is, is a big part of that. And so we're just really honored that, that you would be here today. Well, we are, uh, today has been unique, and yesterday was unique as well. We're having to shake a few things up this morning. We've hit some unexpected turns over the last uh, 15 hours, and, and I'll let you know what that means in, in just a minute. But before I do that, I, I want to express how much I love having the opportunity to serve this church. And I mean that. I, don't, I, I work here, but... I serve here, and, I, and, I, and it's an honor, and it's a privilege of mine. And, and with that, I love the privilege that it is uh, to serve underneath the leadership of this church, of John Mark and, and Rael Redwine. And they have, they have led our staff uh, in this church with heart and humility from day one. I, I remember uh, years ago, our church is a little over three and a half years old, maybe. Don't fact check me on that. And I, years before that, we were planning this church, and we were late night meetings, and I just have had the privilege of having a front seat to watching his growth and her growth and just their vision and what God wants to see this church do in this city, and it has been a privilege. And I really do consider it an honor. They, I always tell people that we are not a perfect church, but we are a good one. And, and that is because of the leadership of those two. And, and if you're here for the first time, Pastor John Mark is our lead pastor. And yesterday morning, he and his wife uh, w- w- admitted their youngest daughter, uh, she's just over one, uh, into the, the ICU admission. And I, they want you to know that she is doing well and, and she is going to be doing well, I know when you announce something like that, there's just questions, right? And you want answers to your questions. Well, know this, they're, they're, they're doing well, but they need to be there. They need to be present with their family right now. And so uh, I, I just want to ask you to, to join us. We're in the middle of 21 days of prayer, and we're rounding that out this week. And so join us tomorrow morning at, uh, on our website. You can see the link there. And uh, for 21 days of prayer, but add them to your prayers this week as they just maneuver through these. Um, it's your kid, right? You know, and so uh, just just join them in prayer, and uh, and and then they're going to roll out information as they see fit. That's not for me, but they wanted they wanted you to know that they're in good hands. Uh, their family is here, uh, caring for them, and and so they are very well taken care of. I told John Mark yesterday on the phone. He called me. I was on vacation down in Charleston, and he said, Robbie. I need you. <laughs> and I said, man, stop thinking about it. I'll, I'll, I'll be back. You know, I'll be back. And I just said, John Mark, you got to know, man, that, that you've created, we've created this church. We, we've created a place where you don't have to think about this. You know, I was talking to our dream team this morning as we rallied and huddled. And, you know, I, what I love about the church when it's functioning well, it's, it, it acts like a, a bunch of a white blood cells. What happens to your body when it's cut, when you're injured, these, these white, this is the only thing I know about biology. Do not think I know anything else, okay? But your, your, your body reacts, and so it, it needs to protect that which has been opened. And so these white blood cells, they rush over there to protect 
um, you and, and your insides, and so you scab, and it's just trying to protect you. And, and that's what the church does. When somebody's hurting, we just we rush over like a bunch of white blood cells, and we say, what can, I, what can I do for you? How can I help? What can I do to protect you? What can I do to cover you? And, and I love that about this church. We're not a perfect church, but we are a good church, and we have the opportunity to serve our lead pastor and to, to pray for them. And so if you're wondering how you can serve them right now, you know, they don't need all of us to come over tonight, but what, what they need is your prayers. And, and so just lift them up. We believe God is on his throne, and from there he cares, and from there he, he heals. And so, so let, let's, let's, let's do that for them this week. But uh, So with that, I was not scheduled to speak today. <laughs> and so let's do this. Um, I got back at the house last night at 11, and, and so I just started kind of going, going to work. And, and Pastor John Mark gave me his notes uh, for the message that he had prepared and I just got to say, something's not right about preaching another man's message, you know? I don't know. I, I mean, it's just shocked. It's riddled with Coast Guard stories, right? You know, it's, you know and, and so if, if, if you don't get the joke, come back next week, right? And I just don't know. I mean, I was just going to go for it. I'm like, dude, I'm just going to be you, okay? I'm going to be louder than what I normally am. If I'm not sure if a joke's going to work, I'm going to go for it. You know, and just say it with confidence. And so I, we agree. We're both decent communicators, but we do do it differently. And so uh, we're stepping out of our series this week of, of 21 Days of Prayer. And, uh, and, and so I wanted to make sure that we had an atmosphere of excellence this morning. And, and so I'm a big believer that when the enemy attacks, that God is prepared to go to war. And I think that's what's happening this morning. That's what's happening to our lead, our lead pastor. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind that we're in 21 days of prayer. We don't fight against the flesh and blood, but we, we fight against spirits. And uh, a year ago this week, uh, I was told to head to UNC Charlotte with my oldest because his liver's failing. And I don't think there's, I, I, don't, I, I think there's something at play here. At the enemy says, you know what? God's doing a work in this city. I'm going to try to distract it. I'm going to try to, to, to navigate around it. I think that when that happens, that God is prepared to go to war. And so I think he's ready to go to war for you this morning. I, I think the enemy wanted to get in the way of someone coming to know God this morning. Or he wanted to get in the way of, of someone taking their first step towards freedom this morning. And I believe that God is going to see to it that that does not happen. And so I think we got a special morning Plan. This morning's message may sound familiar to, to a few of you, and that is because I have preached it before um, here. <laughs> uh, I, 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 full disclosure, I, like I said, I started writing last night, and, and I just realized there's no way for me to write a message and keep my sanity. And so I, I went back to my files of messages, and I call it my vault, and I had this message flagged, and, and I always knew that I would actually preach this message again. In fact, I was heading down to a church in Charleston one year ago this week to preach this message when I had to go to UNC, uh, UNC uh, Chapel Hill to, to go be with my son who had to get a liver biopsy because something was going on. And so uh, here we are today, today bringing, it, bringing it back. But here's what I know about you. Chances are you don't remember a single thing about this message, right? And so don't act like you do. If you do, I believe that God's got a, a fresh word for you this morning. In June of 2018, we did a series called You Asked For It. 
And, and we had over 100 submissions from all of you about certain areas that you wanted the church to discuss. Because oftentimes, the church is answering questions that nobody's asking. And so we thought, let's, what, what are people asking? What do people want to know more about? What areas can be difficult to dive into? And, and rather than the church trying to figure that out, we thought, well, let's ask the, let's ask the people in the, in the church. And, and so, so many of those questions came back around the idea of shame and feeling less than or unworthy because of something that happened in, in your past. And so today's message is, is titled, Putting Down the Shame. And the question that sparked this message sounded like this. It said, I know God has forgiven me for my past mistakes, but how do I move past the guilt? I know I understand what the Bible teaches me about. I understand the gospel. I understand what Jesus did on the cross. I get it intellectually, but I don't feel it when I walk through my life and I project my life out into the future. And the truth is, whether it's June of 2018 or August 18th, 2019, this is a question many of us ask ourselves far too often. And before we get too far down the track this morning, I want to address uh, the semantics of this question. I really want to correct the question. What we, what we have to understand is that there is a place for guilt and there is a place for shame, but those two places are not the same place. And let me explain it like, like this. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Guilt is something that you can feel but still know that you are a good person, right? In fact, the reason that you feel guilt is because you understand that the thing you did was wrong. Guilt elevates who we really are because we, don't, we, we, we make a decision that we're not proud of and we say, wow, that wasn't who I am. For example, I can carry guilt for speaking in a demeaning way toward my wife, but in my core, in my character, I know that is not who I am as a person. I did something demeaning, but the action was not who I am. In fact, guilt is a reminder of, of who you really are. Guilt, if handled appropriately, can be a catalyst towards conviction. It, it can be a catalyst towards repentance. It can, it can be a catalyst towards change. But shame is something different. Shame, and, and, and I believe that the understanding, the difference between guilt and shame will help you to understand why this message is called putting down shame rather than putting down guilt. Shame is related to who you are as a person. Shame is your character. Shame is all about who you see yourself to be. Shame is how you see yourself because of something in your past. And the difference between guilt and shame really on a personal level is how you speak to yourself. Here's what, here's what guilt says. Guilt says, what I did was bad, but that's not me. What I did was wrong, and I want to make a change. But what shame says is, because of what I did, I am bad. Because of what I did, I am not 
worthy of forgiveness. Because of what I did, I would not be a good mother or a good wife or father or husband or friend or spouse some someday. And the unfortunate thing is that for some of us, and, and maybe you don't, you don't even know you're doing this, some of us, we hold on to guilt and shame because we unknowingly are using it as a form of accountability. And, and here's what this sounds like. It sounds like this. If, if I let go of the guilt and the shame, then what I'm doing is telling myself that what I did was okay and my behavior is excused. We convince ourselves that holding on to the shame is what will drive us towards getting better, towards getting healthy. If I keep my shame close, it will serve as a reminder to me about what I've done. But in reality, your shame is a tool the enemy uses to define who you are. And so here's my goal this morning. I, I want you to see that letting go of guilt and shame doesn't excuse your behavior. In fact, when we decide to put down shame and we decide to put down guilt, what we're, what we're really doing is believing God is who he says he is. That he did what he said he did. You're believing that there is freedom for you, it's believing that you are not the sum of your mistakes. And so I want to frame this conversation this morning around the idea of shame, because shame has the potential to create far greater damage. Shame has the potential to steal our joy today and rob us of our future and our hope for tomorrow. One of the, one of the things that shame does is is it manipulates the way in which we view God. Did you know that the way in which you view God will determine your approach to him? The way in which you look at God is the, is the determining factor in your posture and your approach to him. If you view God as a scorekeeper of all your rights and wrongs, then the way you approach him will be as a God who is ready to come down on you and punish you. We talk to people so regularly here at the Gathering Church who say, I've been coming for a few weeks, maybe a few months, and they, they let us know that they were, they were raised in the church and that they, they chose to walk away because what they, what they were, were given to believe is that Jesus has a clipboard and he's just keeping track of things. And what that does is it, it means that when we approach God, even, even in worship, when we approach God, we approach him with our head down, waiting for a scolding. Your view of God will determine your approach to him. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. It says, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I added the next 29 and 30. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Listen to this. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How many of you need rest for your souls this morning? My hope today is to present a view of God that compels you to come to him. I, I, I want you to see God in such a way that you're drawn towards him without hesitation, without 
low expectation, without shame and without guilt, because in him you can find rest. Know this today. God wants to give you rest. He wants to give you rest. We're going to do a little bit of digging this morning, and we're going to go into the areas of our lives that, that maybe you've been avoiding. Maybe there's parts of your life that that bring on pain and you're avoiding that. And, and, and we may touch on, on that this morning or maybe in your head you start to, to process some of that as you are here. And, and I just want to encourage you, even if it's just for this morning, just do something for yourself. Take rest. Take rest. Come to Jesus and allow him to work in the presence of your pain. Listen to what Paul says, and we're going to be looking at a lot around what Paul communicates on this, on this issue, and, and you'll see why. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You see, we're talking about the way in which you view God, because the way that you view God will determine your approach to him. But I think what will help us in understanding our view of God is understanding how he views us. How does God view you and I? God's view of you and I is in the context of his creation. When he created Adam and Eve, his intent was for them to be free in the garden. And do you know why God set them free in the garden? I believe it was because he enjoyed watching. I believe God enjoyed watching his creation experience what he created for them. God's intention for your life is freedom. The way in which God views you is through the lens of freedom. That's what he created you for. God loves to watch you and I live in freedom. He says, do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. He wants to see you free. What the tendency so often is to allow shame to rob us of the freedom that God wants for us. Let me just give you some, some real clear examples of what this looks like in our day-to-day lives. You know, there, there are people in this room, and I, I know this because I've been here. There, there are people in this room who, who struggle during worship, during music, because they don't know how much they're really allowed to worship. Maybe shame has a grip on your life and being at church makes you feel more out of place than you can stand because you're, I, I just, I'm convinced that what I've experienced in my life, let me just say that, is that in my moments of regret, in my moments of shame, especially when I'm in a moment of worship, the presence of God is palpable. The disconnect is my willingness to enter into it. And what I've learned to understand is that I don't feel worthy to enter into it. Because of shame. Maybe you've been at the gathering for a while and you've just grown accustomed to the feeling of not being able to go all in because your shame won't allow it. Maybe you're here and when we talk about life groups and we're about to start life group signups next week, life groups, they excite you and they frustrate you because you love the idea. You, but you feel too dirty to really take the mask off with a, a group of people because of the shame you carry from a decision that you've made in your past. You're worried that if you really go all in on this, when you take the mask off, the people in your life group won't be ready for it. Or they'll cut you out of the email thread. 
shame works in many ways. There's another way that shame works its way into our lives that I, that I want to address. Sure, shame comes because of our actions, but for some of us, shame crept in because of something that was done to you. It could be that shame has a grip on you and you, and you don't even know it. You know, my wife and I, we have gone to counseling for three years now. And, and what we've learned is that there are things in our lives that have an invisible grip on us. Things that, that in our lives that, that happen to us that cause us to see ourselves through the lens of shame. You know, maybe something happened in your marriage that wasn't your fault. And as a result, you've begun to see yourself differently. Or maybe your parents separated at a young age and you can't quite shake the idea that it was your, that it was your fault. You know, here's the thing about shame. Shame can drive your life, but it can never take you to a place of peace. Shame can drive your life, but it can never take you to a place of peace. Shame is silently choking us of our purpose. And if you've been at the Gathering Church for any amount of time, you know that we're not going to stand for that. I said it earlier, and we say it four times every service. We exist for four reasons. We want you to know God, find freedom, and we'll stop at nothing to help you accomplish that. We believe God wants us to discover our purpose, and with that purpose, he wants us to make a difference. And so I want to very quickly talk about three things that contribute to our shame, and then I want to I talk about three things that help us, or to help us in putting down our shame. The first thing I want to talk about that contributes to your shame is this, painful regret. Painful regret. Painful regret is one of the building blocks that the enemy uses to create a wall between you and the freedom that's found in Christ. Painful regret creates a point of leverage for Satan. And one of the things about Scripture is, and that what I love about it, is it paints a very clear picture of Satan. And it, it uses different words to describe the enemy, Satan. And, and one of the things it says about Satan is that he's the great deceiver. And what the deceiver uses is shame to get a point of leverage to tell us lies about who we are. And what Scripture wants to do is call out those lies and, and replace them with truth. We see this in the life of Paul. Paul's life is one with extreme regret, painful regret. Many of us understand Paul to be a great man of God, a follower of Jesus, the author of a majority of the New Testament, and all of those things are true. But before all of that, he was a mass murderer. You could say that, that Paul was a terrorist. Paul wanted to see a demise to the movement that Jesus had started after his death and resurrection. And Paul took it personal. And on one occasion, Paul was overseeing the death sentence of a follower of Jesus named Stephen. And in his trial, Stephen called out the, the hypocrisy of the religious elite, and he didn't hold anything back. He gave him the business. Stephen did what, what so many of us want to do in our boss's office. We just want to go tell them how wrong they are, right? My boss is listening. But that's what Stephen did. He, he gave him the business, and he said... You guys are off. And I want you to, to, to listen how these people re responded. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. It says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. How cool is that? That Stephen gets a standing ovation from Jesus. And he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, at this they covered their ears. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Listen. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later become Paul. They laid their feet, that they laid their, their coats at the feet of a man named Saul because Saul was overseeing this execution. This is just one occasion where Paul oversaw the murder of people who chose to live in the freedom of Christ. And Paul had reason to feel immense amounts of painful regret. Paul had reason to feel shame. But after an encounter with Jesus, he's transformed from Saul to Paul, from murderer to missionary, from terrorist to church planter. And here's what I love. Here's the crazy thing. Paul let God do the work. And that's important to recognize. Paul allowed God to get acquainted with just how messy he was and do something miraculous even still. And by the logic that so many of us, and myself included, that we operate in, Paul should have sat down and reasoned with himself and God and said, you know, thanks God for reaching out. But I've done too much bad to receive something so good. And I just thank God that God does not operate out of our logic. Paul didn't let the mistakes of his past determine the success of his future. The second thing that contributes to our shame is when you hold on to it. You know, the facts may be true that, that you made a mistake, that you failed, that you let someone down, that someone did something that negatively impacted your life. I think I would be doing a great disservice to you this morning to tell you that those things aren't real, that those consequences are not real. Maybe you're currently living in them. The fact of failure or heartache may be true, but the shame associated with it says, you are a failure, you are a bad person, you are not worthy of forgiveness, and that is a lie that we must call out. Look at what Paul the same guy who spent so much time trying to, I love this. Paul, who spent so much time trying to kill followers of Christ, he writes this in 2 Corinthians. Listen to, listen to what he says. I don't know if this would have meant as much coming from someone other than Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. You see, the enemy uses our past to wrap shame around us. God uses our past to wrap grace around us. The enemy will use your past, past to, to wrap shame around you, but God uses your past to show you his goodness, to show you his forgiveness. The enemy uses your past to wrap shame around you, and God uses your past to tell you, you are who I say you are. 
And I'm telling you that you are worth it. And somebody has to hear that this morning. I just believe it. You are who I say you are. And I say you are worth it. You are so worth it that despite your past mistakes, I'm sending Jesus for you. Some of you need to hear and believe that this morning. Some of you have an opportunity to come to know God today. To sit here and say, I didn't know that about him and me. I want some of that. The third thing that contributes to, to our shame is when you don't allow God to forgive you and cover your sins. When you don't allow God to forgive you and cover your sins. We have gotten so good at convincing ourselves that Jesus' death could cover the sins of everyone in this room, but not mine. He can cover the mistakes of everyone around me, but not me. Because what the enemy wants to do is isolate you. What the enemy wants you to, 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 to believe is that no one's as dirty as you, no one's as bad as you, and so Jesus can't forgive you. We, we talked earlier, he's the great deceiver. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is having a moment of weakness, a moment of vulnerability that, that, I, that I find unique to, to, to all of his other writings. And, and we don't really know what Paul is referring to in this passage. We don't know if he's talking about a physical pain or a, an emotional hurt. Or, but we know he's praying for healing. And we don't know. Maybe, and honestly, maybe there's a sin issue in Paul. But what he's, what he's asking of God is he says, God, remove this thorn from my flesh. Remove, if, if you would, God, I want to continue my ministry and I want to do it more effectively than ever, but I need you to remove this thorn, this thing, and we just don't know what it is. But Paul is convinced that if it can be removed, he can continue in his purpose. So God, remove this thorn from me. And I want you to listen to how God responds to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, it says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How many of us have come to God with a pure heart, a right heart? I, I believe Paul's heart is right. God, I, I want this thorn to be, I don't like the pain that I feel, but I feel like if it was gone, I could be better for you. And so Paul approaches God with this, and he's got an expectation about how God should respond. And and we do the same thing. We bring God our shame or our past or our hurts, and we have an expectation as to how God should respond. But just like Paul does here, but I love how God responds to Paul. He doesn't respond to Paul the way Paul wants him to. He responds to Paul the way Paul needs to hear it. Because what Paul needs to understand is that even though he is, in, he, he is weak, that his God is strong and his power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. And so what that means is this. Is, it, what God is saying is, is, Paul, you can have pain and purpose. Those two things can go coexist. You can be in pain and still live out your purpose because in your pain, I am made straight. In your weakness, I am made 
strong. Paul can struggle and have purpose. Paul can still process the pain of the past or possibly the present and still fulfill the plan and the vision that God has for his life. Why? Because our God is strong and in our weakness, he reveals his strength to us. You are not broken beyond repair. Some of us are going to have to live the rest of our lives with a limp. But that limp could very well be the presence and the power of God. You can have pain and purpose. You can have a past and a purpose. Shame gets in the way of that. I think some of us need to give God the place and the space to allow him to deal with our shame the way he wants to rather than the way you think he should. God is not going to erase the consequences of our past. He's not going to give us a miracle drug to help us forget. Instead, God is telling you, I know that you're weak right now. I know that you made a mistake. I know this about you, and I'm in love with you. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm going all in with you. We just got to put down the shame. I want to talk for just a few minutes about what happens if we put down the shame. If you put down the shame, this is here something, it will change the way you relate to yourself and to other people. It'll change the way that you relate to yourself and to other people. When you are consumed by shame, the people around you can only get so close. What shame does is it puts a chokehold on every relationship in your life, your marriage, your friendships, your, your work relationships. Shame will build a wall between you and the people who you love the most, and it causes us to hurt so bad that sometimes, sometimes, the people who care about us the most and want to help us. Brene Brown is a, is a researcher and she's a professor at the University of Houston and she's the author of, of many books talking about shame and, and guilt and she speaks all over the world. Her books are sold all over the world. She's even talked about this on Oprah, so she, she's legit. You can just take it to the bank. And she communicates Three key ways to assist you in putting down your shame. And I love these. If you're not taking notes, take the notes. Put them in a drawer. You'll find them later. Take notes here. The first thing she says is this. Talk to yourself like you talk to the people you love. Talk to yourself the way you talk to the people you love. Uh, a while back, Memorial Day 2017, it stands out to me. We had plans, and it rained. And so when you have three kids in a house and it's raining, it's terrible. <laughs> it really stinks. And so my wife and I, we look at each other, and we're just in desperation mode, and we just, like, we huddle up, and we're like, all right, what are we going to do? You know? And so we decide we're going we're gonna to spend the evening creating the best breakfast for dinner on the planet. And so we go to Ingalls, right, and we... We just, it's a yes day. And we're like, all right, kids, get it. You want pancakes? Get it. You want grits? I make the best grits on the planet as well. Let's make them. 
You want, pan, you, you want, you want uh, sprinkles on the pancakes? Let's do it. And we got bacon and we've got eggs and we've got everything you could ask for. And we're just the coolest parents in the world. And, and they want two kinds of syrup. And we say, get the buy one, get one, free one, and we'll do it, you know? And so we go home and our oldest is 13 and he starts making pancakes. He has no clue what he's doing, but we don't care. We need this to last a long time. And, and the boys are like dogs just licking sprinkles off of the ground, the younger ones. And, and, uh, and we get everything to the table and you can just see there's just, where there's just so much pride standing up as we begin to go into dinner. And, and uh, my, my middle child, Makai, is so cool. And what I love about Makai is that he'll look at, uh, he's six at the time, he'll look at an entire gallon of sweet tea and, and what he says is, <laughs> I got this. <laughs> I got this. And so he just, he goes for it, man. I just, you know, he just, he goes for it and he grabs that gallon of tea and he, he's going for it. And I just hear, oh, oh, oh. And he just, there it goes. Just all over the floor. And he looks at me and I'll never, this moment has marked me. He looked at me, he looks up at me and he says, Dad, I am so sorry. I know you're so disappointed in me. What six-year-old uses the word disappointed? <laughs> and my wife looks at me and I look at her and, you know, I, I want to yell at him because why'd you do that? And I, we look at each other and we're communicating. And I just know I got to get this right. I can't mess this up. And he's looking at me with tears in his eyes. And I just, I go over to him and I say, Makai, listen, listen, I'm not disappointed in you. Where'd you learn that word? Buddy, I love you. I'm proud of you. We tell our kids, all, We're, you're going to change the world someday. This has nothing to do with that. Sure, I just bought that floor <laughs> real recently. <laughs> but it's tea. I'll make your brother clean it up. It's not a problem. <laughs> and I just wrap him in my arms. And just this is Makai. You got to hug him. You got to love him. And he's just the kid he is. And I just wrap my arms around him. It's like, I love you, man. I can't be disappointed in you. There's nothing you can do to separate yours. You're stuck with me, man. And what would happen if you began to talk to yourself the way that you talk to the people that you love? What would happen? What would happen if you began to speak life into yourself? What would happen if, if rather than believing the lies and creating stories in our heads where we're no longer worthy we would communicate to ourselves the way that we communicate to the people we love the most. In that moment, Bakai was reminded of who he is and how much he is loved, not of what he had done. What he had done, it, it, was, it was done. It was finished. He needed to know that he was loved. The second thing she says is this. Reach out to someone you love. Shame has to be dealt with together. Let people into your story. Let, let yourself be surprised that others don't view you the same way you do. Let yourself join a life group and go all in. The third thing she says is tell your story. Shame cannot survive being spoken. Be open and vulnerable about your story, not with everyone, but with someone with someone. I had to learn that, that I'm a cracked pot. 
and I've got to get open with somebody. You know, I, one of the things that I've done is, you know, I, I deal with anxiety. And if you've been here any time, you've, you've heard, you heard me talk about that. John Mark, we, this, we try to lead everything with vulnerability here, and we just want you to know what's up and who we are. And I just, I do, I just deal with anxiety, and, and I just had to realize that's okay. And I had to pull people in, and, and what I do is I talk about my anxiety because it can't survive if it's being spoken. But if I keep it here, it's got a hold of me. It's got a grip on me. And for me, it's right here. There's bees buzzing around in my stomach. But if I communicate how I'm doing, I've got people in my life today who've come up to me and said, Robbie, how you doing? I know you weren't planning on being here this morning. How you doing? Because they know because I've communicated to them. I don't always feel worthy. And because of that, I deal with anxiety. I don't know that I got this in me because I deal with anxiety and there's shame. And they know Robbie needs me right now. There's something about pulling people into your story that removes the opportunity for shame to get a hold of you. The second thing that will happen if you put down the shame is this. It changes how you relate to God. Remember what Matthew says. He says, come to me. This is Jesus speaking. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When you put down shame, your view of God changes. Your posture and approach to him moves from this to this. And you can take rest. And maybe for the first time, you can finish that breath you've been trying to take. It changes the way that you relate to God. Paul tells us in in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knew the mess he was getting into when he got involved with me. And God knew the mess that he was getting into when he got involved with you. He loved you before your mistake. He loved you during your mistake. And most importantly, he's obsessed with you after your mistake. The third thing that, that will happen if you can put down the shame is it will change how you are used by God. Just over a year ago, I'm a second. My dad's name is Robert Joseph Denson, and I'm a second. And my dad is, is, a, is an awesome person. And he had the opportunity to, to, to speak briefly at the church I worked at previously before I came to Asheville. And when I talk about this idea of being used by God and just, I'm just a believer that, that God wants you to change the world. We, we put our kids to bed every night and say, Josiah, you're going to change the world? And now he's, he's yeah, Dad, I'm going to change the world. But I just believe it, you know? And when I, when I think about this idea that God, that God wants to use you, and I just look at my parents and I just think, man, that, that's, that's the story. That's, that's the gospel. <laughs> and so I, I, I can't share my parents' story as we end a sermon. I wouldn't do that to you. I know there's lunch plans, right? But I, I do think that there's something to be said here, and I, I'd actually prefer if my dad said it. And so uh, watch the screen for just a few minutes. So Robbie, I want to... Just let you talk a second. Yeah, my name is Robbie Denson. Um, a little bit about my confession is um, on September 4th, 1991, I walked into a room, into a meeting I didn't know much about, a drug addict. 
on September 4th, 1991, that same day, I walked out of there a recovering drug addict. Amen. <laughs> and I had looked back since. Um, but during, during my disease and my addiction, I created a lot of chaos, a lot of stuff that I needed to confess and, and work on. And um, through a 12-step program and, and it leading me back through the back door of the church, I feel like God kind of backdoored me. You know, he got me into recovery, and then he said, I want you back, because he had me as a child, and I was willing. Um, so I came back in with all my baggage and all the things I've done, um, all the confession things. I mean, I just, I mean, I can give you all some harsh stuff. I mean, it's just like this church. I am, um, at 16 years old, I had a 15-year-old girlfriend, and she got pregnant. And her and I made a ride to Columbia by ourselves with my income tax money and had that child aborted. I couldn't talk about that 10, 12 years ago. I couldn't mention it. Today I can, because I don't put dope on that no more. I put the forgiveness for Christ Amen. on that. Um, you know, my wife, nine months pregnant with twins, well, really, nine months pregnant, the babies were right at seven pounds apiece. I'm out smoking crack. She finds me, knocks on the door, cries. I couldn't leave the pipe to go answer the door. Once again, I put dope, more dope on that yesterday, the day after to forget about that. When, Christ, when I walked into the church and I realized what Christ could do through me, to me and through me, I was able to start forgiving myself for those things. I started taking care of myself and my family because my disease affected my kids certainly, and my wife. It affected my em employer, my parents, everybody that came in, in contact with me. And once I got clean, my recovery affected my kids. <laughs> I was able to be, you know, join, be a member of PTA. Never would have happened. <laughs> Never would have happened. I, on the corner I hung out, that didn't happen. I found myself coaching T-ball just a few years later. You know, and then it was me and Tracy. Tracy. Um, she loved me more than I love myself at the end is the only reason I'm here today she got me she led me in the right direction and Christ took me and has done some things with me and um, it's been more I mean my kids the effect it had on them I have nephews several of them they're out there I don't know if y'all know, but the disease of addiction is rampant. I have a nephew in, in treatment. Um, I've had to ha tried to help my nephews. I've tried to do everything I can to help them. Um, they're just not ready. But, um, but my kids, because I can reflect, on my, my dad's sisters, he had six sisters. They were all addicts. Um, I have four kids, three boys, a girl. They're, none of them are addicts. I, I don't know why, <laughs> you know? We know why. Um, yeah, you're right, Rodney. It's nothing I did. It's nothing I did. I mean, you know, I, God afforded me to invest in myself and take care of me with the right kind of motives, and then I was able to take care of the people around me. When I wasn't taking care of me, I couldn't take care of nobody. I wasn't good to anybody, you know? So, um, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. But it's been 20, I've been clean 26 years, and um, it's been a journey. It really has. 
Um, Let's talk about your kids a second. What are they doing, and how, how did this impact them positively? Well, um, I can t- make it a little bit funny. Um, Robbie used to be part of the staff here, and some of you guys may remember him. Um, and he and um, some people, some guys, decided to go to um, Asheville and plant a church. So he's up there doing that. His twin, his twin brothers, not his twin, but his brothers that were twins, they followed him up there. And they had to find jobs, too. So we lost three sons, three daughter-in-laws, and six, six grandkids at the time. And um, Okay, I know where I was going. <laughs> well, obviously, Robbie's like the associate pastor at, um, at the church he's at. And I got another son that works in recovery. He's like the administrative um, marketing guy for a recovery house. And I got another one that works at New Belgium Brewery. So I got everything covered in Asheville. <laughs> I got the pulpit, the recovery, and I got the, the brewery covered. So I mean, but, you know, I mean, I was talking about in the first service. I mean, there, when I was brought up, it was kind of rough. And um, we didn't have the ideal family, but I looked at one in the neighborhood that did. I thought it did. Everything looked really good. And I wanted to have that family. I wanted to be that family. I wanted to be... Jojo was the guy's name that I used to hang out with. And, and today, my family is that family. You know, and, and I, I mean, it's, I'm not bragging. I mean, it's, it's God's glory that, that brought this upon my family. People ask me sometimes, I just throw my hands up. You know, we just put one foot in front of the other, try to do the next right thing, not always doing that, you know, coming up short. What about your daughter? You told me an interesting story about her a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah you know, that, that story about... I mean, this 15-year-old aborting this child, um, my daughter Bailey, when she was, <laughs> she was probably 13 or 14, and it was God, I, I realized later, God put it in my heart to tell her that story about me and what, what me and that girl chose to do by herself. Nobody knew. We snuck off and did this. And I, I told Robbie at the same time, and for whatever reason, um, Many years later, um, she, got, she was getting married, and it was like a month before her wedding, and I kind of assumed some things, and she took me, and she took me aside, and she said, Dad, you know what you told me about what happened between you and so-so? I said, yeah, I remember. She said, well, I just want you to know that I waited. <laughs> you know, she had waited because I, what I'm saying is something, out of something really so bad, Something so good and humble come. So, I mean, it was, it's my story, you know, and um, I'm not proud of it, um, but it got me where I'm at today. Amen. Thank you, man. Amen. Yeah, you know, uh, I have, I, I have, I have just been, I've, I've been blessed. You know, I get to stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, and, uh, you know, my, my dad is crazy. Um, when we're getting bored at the office, they just say, Riley, tell us some stories about your dad. I'm like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, I, I, look at, I look at things and, and, you know, there's just, your purpose is, honestly, it's less about you than it is about the people around you. So I look at it and I think, Levi Denson, Cooper Denson, Graham Denson, Easton Bordner, Hattie Bordner, 
I got so many nephews and nieces. Emma Kate Denson, Ella Denson, Makai Denson, my kids, Josiah Denson, and Angel Denson. My dad's got 28, my parents have 28 years clean. And it was for, it was for them. <laughs> it was for them. And there's this just, this, this, this belief I have. You know, people say, Robbie, tell me your story. And I don't, my story starts with, with that, you know. And um, I wonder how many stories can be changed if we put down shame and then we just leave it there, <laughs> you know. And we just start to take one step forward at a time. I was with my dad yesterday, and we were, we were doing a low country boil. And I'm just from Charleston, South Carolina, and that's what we do. And, you know, you throw, the, you throw the shrimp in, and we had crab legs this time, and you throw the potatoes and the sausage and the corn. And the thing about a low country boil is you got to let it cook, you know. And, and so what you can do is you can put the potato in the low country boil. And the, and the low country boil is, it, the potato is in the low country boil. But if you take it out too soon, it doesn't, it just tastes like a potato. But so, so the, the potato can be in the low country boil, but the low country boil is not in the potato yet. You got to let it cook, right? And just what would happen if you just went all in <laughs> and you just you cooked for a little bit? What would happen if you just put the shame down and rather than just picking it back up so soon, because it's going to feel the same way. What, What if you put the shame down and you just went all in and you said, Jesus, if you're saying this is true, I'm going to believe it and I'm going to figure the rest out later. That's what I got the gathering church for. That's what I got my life group for. I can find freedom there. I just, you know, my cousin... That nephew, this is about a year and a half ago, that nephew that he's talking about is four days older than me. His name's Cam. I call him Cambo. He's got just under two years clean. I talked to him yesterday. We were, we were Skyping, and he's with his son today, this morning. He's visiting his son. I'm telling you what, man, lives can change if we just put down the shame. Let me pray. God, I thank you. I just thank you, you know. You have put before us the next step to believe, to move forward, to stop feeling that who we are is defined by what we've done or what's been done to us, God, that that you say who we are and we are worth it and we are worthy and we have been called that you want to hear our praise, that you want to hear our worship, that you want our lives, God, that you're okay if we got to walk with the limp. Jesus, I pray that that, that the heart in this room that is so bound up in prison, God, would be released this morning. That your spirit would move, that freedom would, would feel tangible in this room today. In the name of Jesus, amen.